Bible, um, you can turn to the book of Genesis with me. If you do not have a Bible, you can still turn to the book of Genesis with me because there's a blue Bible in the chair, the seat back in front of you. And uh, if you're asking yourself the question, where in the world is the book of Genesis in the Bible? I got a very easy answer for you. It's the first book of the Bible. You just open that baby up to that first book and you're looking for a big 39 and then you'll be in the text with us this morning. Remember that it was during spring of 2014 or 2004 uh, that Katie and I had just started our dating relationship and um, we had gone to a conference with a group of our friends in sunny Daytona, Florida. So we were traveling back with this group from the conference. Uh, we were several miles down the road. I think we had come some hundred miles from Daytona, Florida. We were in North Carolina. And uh, it was nighttime, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. in the morning. That was back when I could actually stay awake at night in a car. Um, not so anymore. I think I've got about 30 minutes in me at 1 a.m. in the morning. And so as we were driving down the road, we were talking about all that we had experienced at the conference. I looked back and the friends were all asleep. And I remember seeing something out of the corner of my eye. There was an 18-wheeler and it was merging into my lane. And before my brain could react to the situation, the 18-wheeler hit the driver's side bumper, the back bumper of my car, and the car just started spinning out of control. As I shot forward, uh, I was right in the pathway of the 18-wheeler. Then I grabbed hold of the steering wheel, and I did one of these numbers with it as quickly as I could, and we shot across two lanes of traffic, missing cars, onto the shoulder. It was the longest five or so seconds of my life. The car came to a halt. We got out of the car, we stopped, I patted myself to see if I was okay, I assessed the situation, it seemed like everyone in the car was okay, uh, quite miraculously, there was only minor damage to the car, and the driver of the 18-wheeler, well, he was quite shaken that he had accidentally hit a little Ford Escort on the road. I remember the feeling I had in those moments. I have no control. There was nothing that I could do to prevent the car from swerving. If it wanted to go left, guess what we were going to do? We were going to go left. And if it wanted to go right, well, we were going to head off right. Essentially, the force that the, car ha uh, the 18 wheeler had enacted upon the car was sending us into a direction, and that was where we were heading. Now the wreck, the wreck was only a momentary loss of control. It was a very dangerous loss of control, but it happened just in seconds. I'm sure you can think, though, of other situations, other scenarios in life where it feels like you are completely out of control, 
and that feeling stays with you for a long time. How might we feel like we've lost control? Well, it could be a loss of security. I've talked to many people who go through a season where the company is downsizing. They know that there's a list of names under consideration, and they know that their name is on that list. They feel like there's no control in that moment. It could be physical. It could be an injury sustained, a chronic illness that you deal with, or just simply the effects of aging. It could be emotional. You feel overwhelmed, depressed, anxious. And sometimes your emotions feel like they are driving the vehicle. Or it could be relational, such as a deep rejection from a family member. If we were to ask Joseph how he felt at the time in the story where we've picked up, I'm sure that he would have said very clearly, I have no control. I have no control. Can you blame the guy? Just imagine it. You're betrayed by your brothers. You're shackled in chains and you're sent down to march under the blistering sun to a land called Egypt. When you get down there, they strip you of your clothes, they put you up on an auction block, and you're hearing people rattling off in a language that you do not understand because what? You don't speak Egyptian. You only see the body signals. And they're pointing at you, and then they're pointing at that guy, and you're going to go off with him. See, in Genesis 39, we watch Joseph live Uh, in circumstances that feel completely outside of his control, the unhindered life. That's the point that we're going to see this morning. There is a way to live this life even when this life feels completely outside of your control. And I want to frame this story with three big questions, three questions that I think the story presents to us this morning. The first question is this, how should I live when I am not where I am supposed to be. Second one, how should I live when I am being pressured to do what is wrong? And thirdly, how should I live when I am being treated unjustly? So we'll pick up the story with this first question, how should I live when I am not where I am supposed to be? And we look there at verse 1. The text says this, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now think about his situation for just a moment. He has come from Palestine. He's now down in Egypt. You can imagine Joseph thinking to himself, I am not where I am supposed to be. Remember last week that God had given that grand vision and in that vision, Joseph saw himself in a position of superiority, that he was going to be a leader amongst his family. And even as we thought about that celestial dream that he had, that there would be some kind of position of prominence in the world. So as you think about the dream and then you think about Joseph's situation, you're asking yourself the question, how could that vision possibly take shape in Egypt? How does that happen here? Egypt was an important cultural center at the time and 
when Joseph came down into that Nile Valley and he saw those grand pyramids, he must have felt incredibly small. He'd be woken up in the morning with these rhythmic chants of the Egyptian priests as they were seeking to awaken the gods from their slumber each and every morning. You can see the dilemma. Joseph isn't where he's supposed to be. How can this small, lone Hebrew exert any kind of influence in an environment like this? And not only that, he's dealing with uh, an owner, Potiphar, who's a pretty bad dude when you think about it. His position in the Egyptian court is the captain of the guard. The title suggests that this was a prominent position. The guard was elite, courageous, and ruthless. The Jewish historian Alfred Erdsheim described that group by saying that Potiphar was probably the chief of executioners. Can you imagine working for that guy? He would not be someone I would want to mess with, would he? Yet, in the midst of all of this, while Joseph is not where he's supposed to be, the Bible tells us that he begins to prosper. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. I mean, what an amazing turn of events. He rises the ranks in Potiphar's home. He he begins as just a humble uh, servant, and then he becomes uh, tasked with overseeing Potiphar's personal affairs. And and as Potiphar's watching Joseph operate in life, he sees that this guy is such a hard worker, so trustworthy, and there seems to be a supernatural impulse behind all that he's doing that Potiphar makes him head over the entire household. I mean, it's incredible when you think about it. Now, I want us to pause for a moment and consider a principle that we're watching lived out in this story. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you are not where you are supposed to be? Have you ever struggled with that thought? I mean, as a pastor, I often hear members express the feeling it might be work-related, it might be geography-related, it might be related to the marriage that they're in. And so what do we do? Well, we idolize another situation. We say, this is clearly not where I'm supposed to be, and we start dreaming about something else over here. We say something like, if only I was in Florida during these Cape Cod winters, well then, everything would be better. Or if only I was in a different position. Or if only I had married someone else. Do you know what this is called? This is called the grass is greener mentality. Surely if I was somewhere else with someone else doing something else, well then I'd be better off. But here's what Joseph came to learn. 
Joseph learned that there is no ideal place. There is only the place that God has you. Do you know what that means? It means that there's no ideal marriage. There's no ideal college. There's no ideal job. There's no ideal quality of life. And you better believe there is no ideal church. Those who constantly search for the ideal only find themselves frequently disappointed. Because when we get to the other side of the grass, well, what did we learn? It wasn't greener. The ideal didn't turn out to be what I thought it would be. So here's a principle. The ideal situation is the situation that God presently has you in. That's the principle. You are where God has you for a reason. And what does that mean? Well, positively it means this, that I can make the most of any situation. I can be anywhere, and as long as God has placed me there, I can be incredibly successful in that endeavor. But you say to yourself, well, I don't feel like I want to be there. I don't feel like that's the place for me. But the problem, friend, is not your location. It's not your job. It's not your set of relationships. The problem is your attitude. You've decided in your heart that your present situation isn't right, so you feel like it is outside of your control. But notice that Joseph didn't take that approach. I, I love what he does in this story. He determined in his heart that he was going to give Potiphar his best, that he was going to make the best of a horrible situation. He wasn't just going to roll over and die. He wasn't going to just do enough to stay out of his master's bad graces. He had determined that God had placed him in Egypt and he was going to give God his best in Egypt. You see that? Now let me ask you a point-blank question. Are you fully engaged in this place right now? Or are you busy looking for something better? Are you chasing after a different life or are you presently living the life that God has given you? You see the difference between the two? Be like Joseph. We need to excel where we are. Now, we come to realize in life that just because we can excel somewhere doesn't mean that there won't be challenges wherever we find ourselves. In fact, as Joseph progresses in this story, we see that he gets a lot of pressure exerted upon him, which leads us to another big question. How should I live when I am being pressured to do what is wrong? Uh, verse 6 tells us an important detail about Joseph. And if you missed this, you don't want to miss it. Now, Joseph was uh, handsome in form and appearance. What does that mean? It means that Joseph was a hunk. He was a good-looking dude. Katie actually uh, wrote in parenthesis in my text, she said, much like myself. And she wanted me to say that to you guys. I was like, Katie... What you don't realize is I fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. 
you are just a godly woman with character. Your life verse is 1 Samuel 16, 7, which is, the Lord does not look at appearance, but looks at the heart. But Joseph now, well, he was a good-looking dude. He was cool, confident as he went about his work. He had the looks. He had the charm. And it didn't go unnoticed by Potiphar's wife. Verse 7, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Now, that's not a subtle hint, friends. That is basically saying, Let's have sex right now. F.B. Meyer notes this, an important insight. He says that temptation tends to hit us when we feel strong. He says, we may expect temptation in the days of prosperity and ease rather than those of privation and toil. Not on the glacier slopes of the Alps, but in the sunny plains of the Campania. Not when the youth is climbing arduously the steep ladder of fame, but when he has entered the golden portals, not where men frown, but where they smile sweet, exquisite smiles of flattery. It is there, it is there that the temptress lies in wait. Beware. I couldn't help but think of that recent explosive charge that was leveled against the Patriots owner, Robert Kraft, as I thought of this. I mean, if you're not familiar with this story, if you you haven't been following the headlines, uh, Kraft was charged for soliciting prostitutes in uh, Jupiter, Florida. And I don't know about you, but the more I hear this story, the more I just think to myself, why, Robert? Why would you do this? Why would you go to a place like that, a place that's known to be abusive towards girls? I mean, why would you throw away your good name? Why would you put the ownership of the Patriots' pretty fleeting moment of pleasure? But even as I ask that question, I know the answer. It's called human nature. It's called temptation. You know, we can fool ourselves and say to ourselves, well, I'm basically a good person. I don't hurt people. I don't do things like Robert Kraft. But Jesus completely leveled that argument in Matthew chapter 5 when he said this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's he saying there? He's saying, given the right set of circumstances, the right temptation, you might throw it all away to indulge a desire. That's the truth. That's who we are. So in Joseph's case, the pressure is very severe. He was a slave in a household, and Potiphar's wife, well, she's uh, Potiphar's wife. Guess who's holding all the cards in that power dynamic? She is. And, you know, think about the young man. I think you can imagine that as a young man, it would be pretty easy for this guy to say yes for a variety of reasons. I mean, can you just imagine the pressure? Maybe you can. Maybe you've felt the pressure of power where 
Someone who has power over you has asked you to do something unethical. Or maybe you have felt the pressure of reasons. You go through the list of reasons in your mind. I'm lonely. My spouse neglects me. Or maybe you've even told yourself the big lie that I love them. R.T. Kendall says this. Lust has a way of camouflaging itself for love. Or maybe you have felt the pressure of feeling inconspicuous. No one will know. It's just me here. I can get away with it. Friends, that's real pressure. That's pressure that's present. That's pressure that's dangerous. That's why I love Joseph's response. I mean, this guy soars to heights as he says the words that he says to her. He says, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is no greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? Now, when that temptation comes, I think what we're seeing in this story this morning is that you had better know why you are going to do the right thing. Uh, we can't say it just happened, right? Nothing just happens. What we're saying when we say it just happened is I didn't think about my convictions before I was presented with the challenge, which means a lot of things. Uh, young people, it means for you, as you think about why you want to remain pure until marriage. You have to know why that's right. You have to know why that's God's best for you. You have to learn that truth. The same thing has to do with our work environment. I have to know why I want to be an ethical person. And that Joseph was able to counteract this temptation so completely in this moment was because he had all the right reasons in mind. And what were his reasons? Well, I see four. Uh, one reason is that he respected his responsibility. He said he has put everything that he has in my charge. He also respected the marriage. He said, you are his wife. He respected right and wrong. He said, how can I do this great wickedness? Friends, do you know how to call a spade a spade? And we live in a culture that is euphemizing language all the time. Adultery is an affair. But when I am tempted... I have to be clear within myself. I have to be able to say, this is just wrong. This is evil. And if I start softening the language, then I might already be talking myself into doing it. Fourthly, he respected God. How can I sin against God? Now, this is by far the most important reason I have come to believe that it is only uh, ever for the love of God that I will ultimately choose to do something. Think about it like this. You could set up all the boundaries in the world around yourself to keep yourself from being tempted by sin, but there will come a moment unless you live in a bubble somewhere, and even then you can't protect yourself from the mind, that you will be tempted. And so when push comes to shove, it's, 
only the love of God that is going to keep you steady and stable and on the right path in that moment. Are you struggling? Is there some kind of reoccurring trend, some kind of reoccurring theme of sin in your life? Pornography, uh, temptations at work, I don't know what it is. It could be anger, it could be all kinds of things for you. But the one thing I do know this is the only way that you're going to find victory in that is if you cultivate within your heart a love for God and if you come to recognize the realness of His presence in your life. There's a Latin term that might help you to do this. It is quorum Deo. It captures the essence of the Christian life. It essentially says everything I do takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live quorum Deo, says R.C. Sproul, is to live one's entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God to the glory of God. Now, when I talk about this, I don't want you to envision God as big brother standing over your shoulder just waiting for you to mess up. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about how do you act when someone is in your presence that you love, that you cherish, that you respect deeply? I'll tell you, when someone is like, like that is in my presence, I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to be embarrassed in front of them. I want them to be proud of me. I want them to be pleased with me. That's what I'm talking about this morning. That's how the love of God motivates us to do the right thing. This is the ultimate why. That's why Joseph could say, no way, Jose. Now, we all know how life works, right? You say no to a temptation once. Uh, it doesn't matter how strong the temptation is. You tell that temptation no, it runs away and it never comes back again, right? Yeah, you're living in a dreamland if you think that that's how the world works, aren't you? And that's clearly the case in Joseph's story. Verse 10, and as, he spoke, uh, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, can you imagine you're living in this home. There's no space you can go to get away from this. He would not listen to her. To lie beside her. So now she's softening it. Just come and lie with me on the bed. We don't have to do anything. Or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. Now, Joseph did the only thing that you should do when someone is not willing to take no for an answer. <laughs> he ran. He ran. Now you might say to yourself, I don't think that's very manly. Well, I, I beg to differ. I think that's incredibly manly that he ran. You see, when Satan is on full assault... We don't stand around and say, now what was that Bible verse again that told me that I could stand up against this? No, don't think about anything. Just run. Get out of the situation. There is a time for that. And then, you know, when you're someplace and it's safe, you can start thinking about the Bible verse again. But run. So as we see that Joseph does the right thing, 
He's the guy that stood up to temptation. He did the right thing. You, you expect for him to come out on top, don't you? That's how the world works, right? When someone does the right thing, they come out on top. Uh, no, it's not how the world often works. And we see this in Joseph's own story. Look at verse 13. Um, and as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me and cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So now we're asking the question, how should I live when I am being treated unjustly? See, Potiphar's wife, she is not only brazen, but she is cunning. She builds her case first amongst the slaves. She starts with a prejudice that they clearly held. This is uh, Egyptian slaves. She calls him the Hebrew, she presents a piece of circumstantial evidence. Clearly, the Hebrew did this, turn brain off, move on, right? And after getting the servants on her side, she then lays the garment next to herself and she prepares for the best performance of her life. Now, did you notice that this is now the second time that Joseph's cloak is being used against him to spin a false story? Verse 16, And she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Now look at what she's doing once again. Look at how she describes Joseph. This time it's not just the Hebrew, now he's the Hebrew servant. Essentially, she is saying, whose word are you going to rely upon, Potiphar? Uh, my word? A, a proper Egyptian woman? Or are you going to trust this foreign servant? And then she puts the blame squarely on Potiphar. Besides, you're the one that brought him here. This is your fault. I mean, she's really good. Now, Potiphar doesn't say anything. He only acts, and his actions are surprising in this story when you actually think about it. I mean, just consider his position, and consider the charge that's being leveled against Joseph right now. He is being charged with attempted rape, which is a capital offense in Egypt, especially if it was a slave attempting this with the mistress of the house. But the text says in verse 20 that, that Potiphar only put Joseph in prison. He didn't have him executed. Here's what I think happened. Uh, do you think that Potiphar would become the chief executioner if he was a simple guy that was easily manipulated? I don't think so. 
In fact, I think that Potiphar could probably spot a rat a mile away. However, he's an incredibly tough social dynamic. I mean, what respectable Egyptian is going to side with a Hebrew slave over his own wife, right? And so he throws Joseph in jail. And when you think about justice, that might make this dynamic the most unfair out of all of the situation. If Potiphar truly believed that Joseph was innocent, yet he threw him in jail, that is truly unjust. In the story, Joseph is left voiceless, isn't he? He runs. He does the right thing. Potiphar comes home. There is no trial. Questions aren't asked. Joseph is guilty based upon the words of a manipulative woman with some circumstantial evidence. I mean, we look at the story and we say to ourselves, this just isn't fair. I hate to break it to you, but life can be incredibly unfair. Have you ever been wrongly accused of something? Have you ever had someone take your good name and, and run it through the mud? Because they have their own personal problems and, and that's how they get a little power in life. Have you ever been treated unfairly? I think you can relate to this. This type of dynamic happens all the time. So what do I do in a situation like this? Well, you can go count a Monte Cristo. You can escape from jail, find an enormous fortune and get even. We do that, don't we? We get wronged and I discover my new life mission. <laughs> it's to run around and tell everyone how innocent I am and how wrong and evil they are. Or you can curl up in a ball in your cell and hope to die. You know, when some people get wronged, they never recover from it. They're broken goods now. They enter into the life of being the forever victim. Friends, what I want to suggest to you this morning as we look at all of these instances, whether it's the place you're at, whether it's the pressure you're feeling, whether it's being treated unfairly, that there's a better way. You can adjust your heart attitude. You can live in light of the reality that there is a big God behind the scenes. And that's what we see. That's the point of Genesis 39. How can we live our life when we feel like we have no control? And the answer is, we can actually live confidently. How? How can I live confidently when it feels like the odds are stacked against me? When it feels like no one's going to take my side? When even justice itself seems to be turning its back? on me. Well, look at how this story resolves. Verses 21 to 23. But the Lord was what? With. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because what? The Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You can be confident because God is present. He is present. 
Do you remember when I asked the question last week, where is God when my dreams are shattered? And we thought about Joseph. Where was God when he was walking down to Egypt? Did God stand next to him on the auction block? Was he there when he was bent over in humble servitude? And Genesis 39 gives us a resounding yes. Yes. He was there. He was present. He was there from beginning to end. Look at verse 3. The Lord was what? With Joseph. Verse 21, but the Lord was what? With Joseph. Verse 23, the Lord was what? With him. He's with him from start to finish. But not as a passive onlooker. No, the name of God that's used in this passage eight times is a name that reveals a God who is personally present. The Lord or Yahweh, God's covenant name, the relational name of God. It means that God is near, that he's emotionally concerned, personally involved, moving, leading, and guiding in the situation. You know what the truth is when your life feels out of control? The truth is this, you can be confident in God's presence even when it feels out of control. Too often we're told to be self-confident, Believe in yourself. You can do it. But the reality is this. I cannot believe in myself. I might have no power to change my circumstances. You can believe in yourself all you want, but if someone throws you in jail and swallows the key, well, you're living in a dreamland. So what is going to assure me when I have no control? What will give me strength when I feel alone? What will sustain me when I don't know when the next paycheck is coming? What can I rest my confidence in when I stand next to my child's hospital bed? Positive thoughts? Well wishes? My own brute determination? Those won't cut it. I'll only be sustained if my hope is in the one who truly controls all things, is in control at all times, in all places, over all powers. I must be God-confident. Self-confidence is a facade, it's a pipe dream, it's a mirage, it's unwise. God-confidence is secure, eternal, Incredibly sensible. Friends, this is the secret to the unhindered life. The truth is always and has always been, I am never in control. I didn't lose control when the car was hit. I wasn't in control from start to finish. I might feel like I am, but I'm not. But God... He is always in control. So if I put my trust in him, then I will be unhindered. Why? Because he's unhindered. Will you bow your heads with me as we consider this thought? Now as I close this in prayer, I want to read Psalm 56 over you. If we truly take this psalm in, if we truly 
live out the reality of this psalm, we will be much more stable in this world. We will live in that God confidence. Listen to the psalmist. O God, have mercy on me. For people are hounding me. My foes attack me all day long. I am constantly hounded by those who slander me and many are boldly attacking me. But when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? They're always twisting what I say. They spend their days plotting to harm me. They come together to spy on me, watching every step, eager to kill me. Don't let them get away with their wickedness. In your anger, O oh God, bring them down. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. My enemies will retreat when I call to you for help. This I know. God is on my side. I praise God for what he has promised. Yes, I praise the Lord for what he has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? I will fulfill my vows to you, O God, and I will offer a sacrifice of thanks for your help. For you have rescued me from death. You have kept my feet from slipping. So now I can walk in your presence, O God, in your life-giving light. Amen.